Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line, as always, is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, the Pro Tour is back. Can you believe it? I was just thinking, like, we basically never talk about, like, announcements regarding magic at large. We're very hyper-focused here on Lords of Limited, but it's hard for us to not talk about the return of the Pro Tour, and more importantly, the return of Competitive Limited. Heck yeah, baby. I am stoked. I think on a personal note, I'm a little sad that there are not GPs, but I am beyond thrilled at the announcement. And I think it is a fantastic announcement overall for the general state of competitive magic. And anything that's good for competitive magic and competitive limited is good for us. I mean, just think about it. We're going to have PT draft reviews back, hopefully. I know. That's so, so, so exciting. Yeah, I I really miss getting to do those episodes, and I'm so looking forward to doing them again. So very exciting. If for some reason you're listening to this podcast but do not know, there was a huge organized play announcement uh, last week. And to the surprise of at least myself, but I have to imagine to the surprise of everybody, like everybody seemed to like it. Magic (laughs) Magic players love complaining about stuff. And I was just like looking over this announcement, and I was like, it's hard to find something to complain about this. And then Twitter did not go up in flames for the next few days. It was uh, it was pretty positive. Yeah, I think it was great. I mean, the bar had been set so low, <laughs> all the bad decisions. That was the secret, right? You just yeah. trash all of magic organized play and then anything you present is going to seem great. Yeah, just go. Oh, we're just going back to basically how it was before. Oh, yeah, we love that. Great, great. <laughs> so yeah, competitive limited will be back. I think it's going to be part of the first return to the pro tour right it's going to be pioneer and limited yeah well and if you want to get on so if you don't know the structure there's like regional championships now Mm -hmm. too and then there are like local wpn store qualifiers and your local game store could be running limited possibly as an avenue to get you a qualification to the regional championships I love that. Yeah. And well, and, and before, you know, even doing like the mythic championship qualifiers on arena, you could play limited to qualify, but then you were qualifying for a constructed only tournament. But now that's not the case, which is also awesome. Yeah, completely agree. I think I am unlikely to be invested in trying to compete at the regional championships, but I am thrilled for this for magic players everywhere and for the podcast. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So very, very exciting news there. And very, very exciting that we're going to be sending off Kamigawa Neon Dynasty in classic Lords of Limited fashion with our 50 takes in 50 minutes episode. Ben, I know you're a huge fan of Dominaria, which is the flashback format on Arena right now. And people, you know, we always say that this is like a a great style episode for people to return to, to go back to um, if they're like, you know, haven't played the format. This gives them a concise little, hey, here's a here's an hour of a podcast that gives you our summary of the format and a bunch of little takes and dominaria was the first one that was our 50th episode that kicked off the style of uh, of show dominaria was the first one it is not my favorite format in case people don't know what your sarcastic voice sounds like <laughs> yeah that's just my voice um but yeah yeah i do think that uh dominaria does not hold up for me i think it was like it was a, a fun format at the time for me but anytime i've gone back to it in flashback drafts i've just been like oh my god like the commons are so bad I just breathe a sigh of relief when I look at a pack of Neon Dynasty and I'm like, I can take commons out of this pack and not be mad. I am not happy about any common in in Dominaria, basically. Well, and it's not even that the commons aren't that powerful, but it has uncommons that are as powerful as Neon Dynasty's uncommons. And there's just right. such a disparity between the cards that do matter and the cards that don't matter, which feels pretty terrible. But you know what does hold up? 50 takes in 50 minutes, baby. 
Yeah, 50 takes in 50 minutes. So we're going to be rattling off 50 takes in 50 minutes about Neon Dynasty, giving you some specifics, some big picture stuff. But before we get into that, a few housekeeping things to take care of. First things first is the Patreon page, patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is where you can go to give back to the show if you so choose. Everybody who gives back to the show gets access to the Lords of Limited Discord. We say it every time a new set is around the corner leading up to a new set. We have Streets of New Kapenic going live in just a few weeks. Actually, it'll be going live in paper first and then uh, online at the end of the month. Very, very exciting there. The Discord is the best place on the internet for 24-7 limited tech support. You want help on your you know, pre-release sealed pool. You want to figure out what's going on with the best commons, etc. That's the place to get in on the ground floor of breaking a format wide open. A lot of other great stuff over at the Patreon as you move up the reward tiers. And of course, we want to shout out our new patrons the first week that they join. And this week, we are welcoming Foster, Wang Ki, and Griffin. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, cannot say thank you enough. And I know, again, I say that every week as well. And I was just <laughs> listening to LR and Marshall's thanking of patrons is so thoughtful. And I just want to like zoom out for a second. And, you know, all the stuff we usually say, we really, really do mean it uh, when we say thanks for, you know, whether you're just listening, you're a patron, you're somebody that maybe isn't a patron, but you take the time to send your prime sub to Ethan or I on Twitch. There's so many different ways that people support this podcast and we appreciate each and every one of you. Yeah, I know my like, I feel like my internet persona is is generally one of, you know, as Ben said, if you don't know what Ethan's sarcastic voice sounds like, and I say, <laughs> well, that's just my voice. Like, but I really like, I, I have a real like warm, gushy part of me. And I think about how thankful I am and how grateful I am to be in the position I am to get to do what I do every day, to get to talk about the thing that I love every day with you, with, you know, viewers, to get to interact with people on the internet all the time. And that's just like made possible because of the people who support our show and our content. For sure. In addition to the Patreon, show is brought to you in part by Channel Fireball. Channelfireball.com, best place to go for anything and everything you need magic-related. And speaking of the Pro Tour being back, Pioneer's one of the formats, and you might not have bought paper cards in three <laughs> or four years. Who knows? So if you need to get some of those Pioneer cards for your return to the Pro Tour, make sure you head on over to the Channel Fireball Marketplace. And for any purchases that you do over there, or maybe you're signing up for CFP Pro, you want to get that sweet, sweet pro content. Maybe you need to figure out how to play Limited, so you're coming to Lords of Limited to figure <laughs> that out. We've got strategy articles up there. The pros have strategy articles about Constructed. So make sure you're getting on CFP Pro if organized play is something that you're wanting to do. And make sure you've got the cards for your deck. And whenever you do anything over at Channel Fireball for any of that, please use code LOL, all caps, to let them know that we send you over there. I love that every week when you talk about Channel Fireball and you talk about the articles that you can get on CFP Pro, you always do a slight dig to us by saying, we've got articles over there. The pros have articles over there. <laughs> I Just mean, like, that is on purpose. <laughs> we are know. not professionals. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we do make money doing this. So, I, you know, I don't know. But yes, I, I know what you mean. But every time you do it, I'm like, wow, Ben, savage. What a sting. <laughs> um, all right. Are you ready to get to these 50 takes on Neon Dynasty, sir? I absolutely am. All right. Number one, Neon Dynasty is a format all about sagas and by extension, two for ones. Two for ones, the format. Holy cow. Just think about how many two for ones there are. There's Virus Beetle. There's Spirited Companion. There's every saga ever printed. There's two for ones. <laughs> there's three for ones. There's four for ones. Holy yeah. cow. The card advantage is real. Yeah, it's really incredible. And I think that I, I don't 
hate it as a like, you know, a direction that design is going in, but it really does change a lot of limited heuristics. Like, I mean, we'll talk about this a little later, but about like, you know, everything being a two for one by extension then makes a lot of the removal pretty darn bad or like not bad in the sense of like, you don't need to interact with what your opponent's doing, but it does make it not a priority. It makes it more important to be, you know, doing your own two for ones than, you know, interacting with your opponent's two for ones. It really has a pretty big domino effect on how the format plays out. Right. It sets the rules for how you have to engage with the format, because if you're not getting the two for ones or if you don't have season of renewal, you have to get the game over with because you're going to be playing opponents that do have the late game completely locked up. Yeah, for sure. Number two, going into the format, we thought the sagas might be too slow, but they were in fact too busted. It's pretty big miss, right? Like that was what we kept worrying about. Like, oh man, is it going to be just, uh, can you really like afford to play this on turn two and then it doesn't become a creature till turn four and you can't attack with it till turn five? It's like, yeah, no one cares. It's great. These cards are all great. They're insane. They're planeswalkers that you can't <laughs> attack and kill and then flip into creatures. That is really true. A lot of the time, like sometimes they do feel like that, like long reach of night or like even oftentimes like I would play a saga or be like, oh, I'm going to do this, but oh, they can attack it because like the effect you got felt like a planeswalker and they'd be like, nope, this is just an enchantment and then it's going to be a warm, fuzzy creature. Yeah. Sagas are insane. And if you're coming back to the format and haven't played the format or you've forgotten, just take all the sagas and profit. Yeah, for sure. Well, except for yeah, a few of them, the, the you know red ones like Shattered States Era or whatever isn't that great. But by and large, almost all of them are busted two for ones, three for ones plus. Yes. Um, yeah, for sure. What, what do you think about seeing saga creatures in the future? Yay or nay? Nay for me. It I think... It's really powerful, and it was really fun initially playing with the power when everyone had the power. Mm -hmm. And now I've done it enough that when I play a green deck that just plays all the good green sagas and green uncommons, I'm just over it. I've played that game like <laughs> 20 or 30 times, and I don't need to lose to Besage Regis Skyward for the 50th time or whatever, you know? Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Number three, the colors exist on a spectrum of red to blue to black to white to green. And that spectrum goes from artifacts mattering to enchantments mattering with black in the middle straddling both sides. And this was uh, something you pointed out pretty early in the set. And this really, I think, gives a, a great framework for thinking about how the colors work well or in the case of red and green don't work well together. Yeah, absolutely. I think red, it wants to be borderline mono red, mm -hmm. you know, pairing itself with artifacts, maybe with blue, maybe with black. And then in the middle, you've got blue, black and white as the Esper decks, you know, either blue, black ninjas, black, white artifacts and enchantments or blue, white, really good cards. But I mean, ostensibly some vehicle action in there, too. And then you've got green with all the enchantments. So green, white could be a great enchantments deck. Green, black could be a great enchantments deck. And then you can also just play green with almost all of the other colors except red pretty happily in various multicolors of splashing. For sure. Number four, red is the worst color, but still quite playable. Yeah, it doesn't play super well with others, as you said. Right? Red is really about mono red. So those sort of poles of the, the spectrum there aren't the exact same, right? Red really just plays with itself the best. Green does play with other colors well, but is really you really want to be base green or base red on those poles, whereas in the middle, those colors can also play support colors. Um, and red, really, the big thing is, if this is a format about sagas and two-for-ones, Red doesn't get many two-for-ones, right? At, at non-rare, I can think of two, I think. Which are Experimental Synthesizer and... Twin Shot Sniper, right? 
Yeah. I think that's it, which is, it just makes it hard. I mean, that that then has, again, more domino effects of because Red, Red doesn't get a lot of two-for-ones, it wants to end the game very early. It really wants to be aggressive. I mean, you can sort of grind people out with like anvil decks or like a bunch of synthesizers, but that's, I think, more rare than just beating down with like your slings, your batteries, your kimonos, etc. Well, and also just think about how good the Red aggressive decks are, right? Them pushing the power level up on the sagas and all the other cards let them make a really good aggressive archetype in the format. I mean, your red decks are mono red, one drops, two drops, maybe some three drops, and they're still not always good enough to be the fun police against the saga decks, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's totally true. Yeah, I guess I really hadn't thought about that. This has to be like the, the most number of one drops we've seen for an aggressive deck and they're all pretty darn good, right? I mean, we even we'll talk about Iron Apprentice too as like an honorary red one drop, but like that hasn't really happened. You know, you get these busted curves where you have like 10 one drops in these decks and they look like cube drafts almost in that sense. Right. And sometimes they still can't compete with the sockets, <laughs> which is just crazy. Yeah, that's very, very crazy. So sure. if you're coming back, I think I would not start red. I think you should start the other colors. And then if red is open, let it come to you and then then be the person that takes all the red cards. But you really don't want to be drafting red with someone else. Mm -hmm. Number five, Neon Dynasty feels more like a guild format with only a few viable decks than it does a normal format. We are not in, you know, there are 10 plus decks possible uh, area here. There's really only a few decks you want to navigate your way into. Yeah, shout out to my brother for this take. We were playing this thing that's called Escape Simulator on Steam. My brothers and I once a week play uh, a game night on Wednesday evening. So if anyone likes escape rooms, Hashtag not sponsored. Check out this escape room simulator. <laughs> but shout out to my brother, Adam, for this take. We were talking about it. I really, there are five archetypes. You have like green X and then a bunch of splashes where you're usually some sort of a saga pile. There's the red aggressive decks. There's blue black ninja decks. There's Esper decks that are artifacts and enchantments matter. And then there's like green X good card decks, which are different, I think, in my mind than the saga piles, more like streamlined green white enchantments or green black good cards where you're just a two color pair and you're not splashing quite so much. But there are a lot of like small variations among those decks. But really, those are the five things that you're doing in the format, it feels like. Yeah, I agree. Number six, the final archetype power rankings, according to 17lands.com. Coming in at number one, blue black with 58.4% win rate. In number two, green black, 57.9. Hot on its heels, black red at 57.6. And then green white, rounding out the 57% at 57.0. And then a couple in the middle, blue green at 56.5, black white at 56.2, and blue white at 55.9. And then bringing up the rear in 8, 9, 10, we've got blue red at 55%. Red green at 54.3 and red white attacking alone, wah wah, 53.6. I, I hadn't checked this in a while. I am surprised to see blue black at the number one slot, I think. But by and large, this list looks pretty right to me. I agree. I think playing against blue black, blue black is so hard to play against and it just feels like a dream when you're playing it. Mm -hmm. There's just so many ways to put your opponent in bad spots where they have to make decisions, they don't know what you have, and you get to dictate almost how your opponent has to play the game. I've been super impressed with Blue Black. Yeah, I agree. I, I haven't been impressed by it on the other side of the battlefield. I often don't get into the ninja decks, I think partially because I don't take Network Disruptor that highly, because I'm always like, yeah, the ceiling of this card is high, but like, how often do I end up in that tempo aggro deck? But maybe I should just lean into it a little more. 
I think you have to be willing to start blue if you want to get into blue black more. Because if you start black, the black cards lend themselves better to black white or mm -hmm. black blue not ninjas or whatever. You know, it's easier to fall into other decks. Yeah. Speaking of black, number seven, black was the best color thanks to a deep roster of the best commons and pairing well with literally all other four colors. Yeah, it's right in the middle of that spectrum and it can do artifacts. It can do enchantments. It has its own self-contained synergies. It mm -hmm. just does so much. Think about Okiba Reckoner Raid. You've got that. You've got Virus Beetle. Those are two of the best commons, if not the best commons in the format. I don't care what the stats say. Like they're up there. <laughs> and then yeah. Twisted Embrace as well as another banger of a common. And then even something like Kami of Terrible Secrets, which benefits from taking all those other great commons highly and gives you a reason to play a mix of artifacts and enchantments. Black just does so many things well. Amen. Number eight, Experimental Synthesizer, despite its art, was not the Golden Egg Award winner for the format. What a journey we went on with this card, huh? Heck yeah, it was Muldrifter, shot way up. I was thinking it was <laughs> going to be a B, B plus, all format. And then once, you know, after four or five days, realized that red wasn't quite where you wanted to be, it felt pretty far down for me. And then I think came back up a little bit once you see, you know, the red decks really can compete when they come together and you realize how to get into red responsibly. And it is not by picking Experimental Synthesizer highly. Yeah, because the, the, the problem is, it's a little weird, right, that Red wants to be so aggressive. And Experimental Synthesizer is about value. I mean, at its best, it really is Muldrifter. It's a 2-2 that draws you two cards. But like, is that what you want to be doing when your deck's also chock full of slings and batteries, etc.? You know, it, there's a little bit of tension there. No, well, it's like a saga that you have to do all this work for. Like, your right. opponent just gets to play... You know, Besage you reach a skyward and you've got to build your deck so it stops at three CMC and has almost all red mana and super cheap cards. And it's just so much work when there are other cards in the format that just give you more value at a better rate without the work. Yeah, for sure. Number nine, red removal was, I would say, slash is extremely overrated <laughs> at the start of the format and currently. Kami's Flare is like fine, but like you really, I think, want to make sure you've got the modifications, like you have the slings and the batteries, etc., so that you can get that two damage so that it's like close to what, what's that red, red card from Zendikar? You know what I'm talking about? Like deal three to a creature, three to your opponent. Oh, Searing Blaze? Searing Blaze. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Voltage Surge, uh, poop. Voltage Surge is just poop, I think. Is it? I, yes. I kind of think Voltage Surge might be better than Kami's Flare for the really red aggressive decks. Get out of here. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Anyway, I think they're... Wait, you see... Wait, wait. I didn't even see the second point that you wrote here. Both of them ended up underrated? I think so. <laughs> Get off this podcast, sir. <laughs> I oh mean, my goodness. In the red decks, you really want Tawashi Song Shaper... And then if you have this cheap removal to push through attacks for your Tawashi Song Shaper, that's why Voltage Surge is so important because you can double spell, like get an artifact down or two plus Voltage Surge, clear the way for your Song Shaper. I don't know, man. I don't think Look, they're great, but I think you need some Voltage Surges in your red aggressive decks. Here's all I know about your relationship with Voltage Surge was that 
for the first time two days ago, you <laughs> kicked it and sacrificed an artifact. So that's what I'm going to say about your experience casting Voltage Surge in this format. That's all. I've been on the receiving end, though. It's been impressive for <laughs> uh-huh, my opponent's uh-huh. red decks. All right, moving on. Number 10. Speaking of removal, Neon Dynasty takes the removal is overrated concept to a whole new level. I mean, this felt like such a truism for the format of like, it, it was it was really hard to explain this on stream a lot because I would say removal doesn't matter. Matter, but that didn't mean that I didn't want to have ways to interact with my opponent in the format, right? I didn't want to end the draft and go, oh, thank God I have no removal in my deck. It was just about prioritizing it or thinking about it as an incentive to draft that color or thinking about taking it over a cheap threat or a cheap saga, etc. Right. You just didn't need to pick it very highly, especially because the difference between the tier one removal and the tier two removal wasn't that big, right? you were fine to pay three and a white to exile an enchantment or a creature mm-hmm. with power for a greater at instant speed. Like that was a fine rate for your removal spell in the format because it didn't really matter how efficient the removal was. Almost exiling mattered more than just getting the thing dead. Right, because of the the loops that green decks had, the, the fact that you could get back a bunch of stuff from your graveyard, exile did end up being pretty relevant. Yeah, I think you wanted two to three plus ways to interact with your opponent, like almost a usual amount of ways to interact, but just where you picked the removal in the draft wasn't very highly. Something like touch the spirit realm that you were taking really highly. But Mm -hmm. other than that, I mean, you were fine picking up removal almost on the wheel. Right. Yeah. You're just like, whatever, I'll get I'll get an intercessor's arrest like twisted embrace was good. You'll get it. Oh, whatever. Assassin's Inc. Fine. Like these were good, but not like, you know, insane pulls into a color or whatever. Right, you're taking Virus Beetle over most of those things. For sure. All right, we're going to take a quick ad break here, and then we'll be back with take number 11. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, and even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget doom scrolling, sleeping too little, sleeping too much, undereating, and overeating. I've been not shy about sharing this on stream, but I don't actually think I've talked about it on the podcast yet. Uh, I was recently diagnosed with type 1 diabetes a few months ago, which is kind of a freak accident for someone in my age group, but can happen. And let me tell you, it's very stressful uh, trying to deal with, you know, figuring out, monitoring your own blood sugar, and definitely having some health complications along with that. And I can definitely sympathize with and have been dealing with a lot of these issues of sleeping too little and and worrying about what I'm eating and worrying about my health in general, and it all adds up. Yeah, I'm really sorry to hear that, buddy. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways, and in a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time, this is a reminder from us to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. We at Lords of Limited believe that therapy is a part of a healthy, normal lifestyle, and BetterHelp provides that service in an accessible way. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. Lords of Limited listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com Lords. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com Lords. And now back to the show. All right. Number 11, Imperial Oath is still underrated. How is that possible? I don't know, but I think it's true. I agree. I don't understand how this card goes like fifth, sixth, seventh pick sometimes. Sometimes wheels still. Like you at this point, the people drafting Neon Dynasty are people who are sickos like you and me, right? Like they're people who are drafting a format two months deep are people who know what's up and they should not be passing this card, especially because 
it's effectively colorless. It is there's abundant fixing. The format I think is slow enough that putting this card in your deck with a couple ways to cast it, even if you're not white, is pretty doable. Well, and things that the card does that people don't appreciate. One, it just wins when you're playing against an aggressive deck when you cast it. <laughs> not stable, yep. boom, you are yep. stable. And then the fact that you can chain them together or chain your good cards together against control decks and just be on constant gas once you cast the first one is also a great way to close out the game when you and your opponent are trading haymakers. This is somehow awesome against all of the archetypes in the format when there are a variety of very powerful archetypes that attack the format in pretty unique ways. It's just wild that it's still underrated. And I do owe 17 lands an apology because I thought this was just like noise in the data that this was up at the top early on. And I didn't appreciate how car- how good the card was. So this seems to be a trend for you, Ben, that in our 50 takes episode, you have some apology to give to 17 lands. Any thought to curbing your reactions in the future? No. Uh, I will continue to rail <laughs> against the data as needed. <laughs> That's my guy. There he is. Number 12. Cards like Fade to Antiquity and Repel the Vile that can exile enchantments are worth main decking one to two copies of. Yeah, this, I mean, w- one of our questions a lot of the time going into a format is, you know, what do we think about the the disenchant effects, the naturalize effects? And I think, you know, Fade to Antiquity, we're like, ah, it costs three mana, it's sorcery speed, is this really going to be that good? Yes, yes, it is. I think uh, in some cases, but maybe just better than Master's Rebuke, right? Yes, absolutely. I think I would rather, if you gave me a choice of which one to have a copy of, it would definitely be Fade to Antiquity. That's what I think too, yeah. Um, so th- that's great. And I think Repel the Vile too. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about, uh, my big soapboxy card of Fall of Lord Condo a little later, but Repel the Vile, I, I actually don't dislike because I mean, sure, you can exile an enchantment, exile a creature with power four or greater, but sometimes you know you've got uh, you've got that green one drop, the generous visitor that's grown or has grown something else that you really want to take care of, or the green shrine that's grown out of control, and that's cheaper. And Fall of Lord Condo can't hit that, but Repel the Vile can. Um, so I, I actually really came around to that card being pretty darn good. I forget when it was, but. We talked about it in some episode, and then Ari Lax in our Discord was like, "Wait, are we just are you just not main decking Repel the Vile? Period." And I was like, "I I haven't been." And then ever since that, I really thought about it differently, and I came around to it. Yeah, good card. Number thirteen, Moon Snare Specialist looks like it's as good as Mana War. Spoiler: It's not. Why is it not? There are way too many ETBs. What are you going to do? Reset your opponent's saga and give them another planeswalker? Like, right. <laughs> all of that feels terrible. Bouncing Virus Beetle, Bouncing Spirited Companion. This for- is the format full of two-for-ones because so many of the two-for-ones occur on ETB, which makes it really awkward when you're staring at your opponent's board and you're like, huh, there's nothing I can really afford to bounce over there, you know? Yeah. It's a really awkward place a lot of the time. And I think I would have thought it was going to be the best of the Blue Ninjas cards heading into the format. And I think it is the worst of them coming out of the format. And I think still perfectly playable. And mm-hmm. you're going to put it in your Ninjas decks. It's just a solid C, C plus, And it is not anything particularly special. Agree. Number 14. Greens Uncommons were busted in half yeah these four cards really these three cards i think i think the fourth one on this list is maybe honorable mention but the the top three green uncommons are some of the best cards in the whole set yeah we've got blossom prancer kappa tech wrecker besager reaches skyward and then i'd say honorable mention spinning wheel kick but huge mover up perhaps the biggest mover up for me from like my initial grade of putting it somewhere in the d range d plus range and it's definitely like solid b for me yeah, but when you play against green decks that are 
full of those three cards and or in some cases have all of them and multiple copies of some of them, Mm -hmm. it just feels hopeless. You just cannot win against those decks. Well, and you really, you're like, who are the seven people that you drafted with (laughs) that let this happen? Like, I'm more angry at them than I am about my opponent, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Number 15, you were not supposed to get into green by drafting commons. And I think this was, for my money, the biggest trap in this format. Yes, absolutely. You really wanted multiple of those premium green uncommons for it to be worth fighting over. And you wanted to have at least two of them before you started willingly drafting green commons, I think. And that was not true at the start of the format. But once people figured out, oh, the sagas are great. Oh, the green uncommons are great. People were just fighting over green a lot and you could not get good green decks. And if your deck was full of green commons, it just wasn't anywhere good enough to compete with the black commons or the white commons or the blue commons. You were just playing a bunch of filler and you would lose when you drew the filler part of your deck. Yeah, I wrote a whole article for CFB about this concept and about why this was the case. And part of it is, is that so some of the things that greens commons do or some of greens best commons are ones that take advantage of cards at higher rarity. So you've got Fang of Shigeki and Bamboo Grove Archer as great defensive speed cards. And then you've got Commune with Spirits slash Season of Renewal as your value ways to like cheaply dig for your best cards or rebuy your best cards. But if you don't have those best cards. If you're getting back <laughs> Tales of Master Sashiro and Greater Tanuki, you're doing it wrong. Like you really do need the handful of uncommons or rares to make it worth playing green. Yes. Amen. Number 16, Kami of Terrible Secrets was a common worth building around. I, I was honestly impressed by all the artifact plus enchantment payoffs. Like I think you and I were single-handedly raising the win rate of when we were young by the end of the <laughs> format. Okiba Salvage was very good and underdrafted. And even like Nazumi Blade Blesser as three mana, three, two death touch menace felt like when both of those keyword squares were on my opponent's card on arena, I was worried about that as a threat. Yeah, I didn't play Nazumi Blade Blesser as much because I usually wanted that slot for artifacts or enchantments to turn on mm-hmm. Mikami of Terrible Secrets, but definitely the few times I played it and turned it on was really good. And honestly, you were on Kami of Terrible Secrets really early in the format, right? You had some of those blue-black mm-hmm. decks where you were turning yep. on Kami. It took me a couple of weeks, but once I was on Kami of Terrible Secrets, it was really enjoyable to play and build around. Well, and one of the things was, and I, you know, you really want to make sure that your curve leading up to Kami allowed you to turn it on, right? Like I, I usually wasn't counting my Behold the Unspeakable as an enchantment for my Kami. Like you can, but like the, the real dream is curving into it. But also... The fail case of a four mana three four was not that bad in the format, right? Like you wanted a deck that supported this, but I think one of the reasons that it was a good card was like sometimes just a four mana three four was good on the battlefield. Right. And when you got four mana three four plus draw card, you essentially built your own saga, which is great. Yeah, for sure. Number 17, some of the best cards for red aggressive decks were actually colorless. Shout out to... Iron Apprentice, and for real, for real, Patchwork Automaton. Holy cow, my hatred of Patchwork Automaton knows no bounds. That is the most frustrating to card to play against when it comes down on turn two. And I think really good card design. Like when I saw the Ward 2 on that, I was pretty confused. I was like, that can't really matter. But it really does. And it really like because it's the kind of card that you want to play on turn two and let it get the ball rolling a little bit. 
And the ward two just really gave you that buffer to be like, all right, it's going to be a couple turns before you can kill this. Well, not only is it a couple turns before you can kill it, but you're thinking, okay, I need to be able to do two damage to it or three damage to it. So if I can just hit my fourth land drop to be able to commies flare it. But by then it's a four, four. And then, well, can I just hit my sixth land drop to (laughs) twisted embrace it? Like it's impossible to kill. Yeah, no, totally agree. Number 18, the 50 take staple. Branch of Basaju has reach. Twin Shot Sniper has reach. Blossom Prancer has reach. I didn't know which one to go with. I gotta say, for me, it was attacking into a creature that had careful cultivation on it. That were the, those were the times where I needed to like double, triple check, or honestly, the times where I got got a few times. I think I have only attacked into Branch of Basaju with reach. I think. Yeah, that that it doesn't take long. It doesn't take many times doing that to go. Oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. <laughs> Number 19, blue-black was the best deck for a reason. It could range from very aggressive to controlling, depending on the cards, and it was one of the most potent decks you could put together at the common rarity in the format. And I remember us talking about this when we talked about black, of like, does it matter that a deck like can be formed of commons in this format because of how good the uncommons were? And I think once people caught on to the uncommons, it did matter. And the fact yes. that like seven of the 10 or actually I think eight of the top 10 rated game and hand win rate cards on 17 lands that were common were blue and black. Yeah, well, and white too. I mean, you Mm. and I have made a living in the Esper colors for the last two to three weeks of the format. And I think it's a very enjoyable place to be. And I think while people are, you know, trying to force red or fighting over all the good green cards, Esper is a great place to just consistently build a very good deck. Yep. I had asked you this because I had been I've been making some pretty extreme picks the past few weeks of I think the best <laughs> green you know I've, I've passed my fair share of Besager Reaches Skyward and Blossom Prancer. Tech Wrecker I'll take cuz it's quite splashable. Um but I I passed a Shigeki, the rare. I've passed that a couple times for like Whoa. a Virus Beetle or a Spirited Companion. I'm just like I'm just not interested in fighting over green with six other people at the table. Yeah, I take a different approach. I I take the good green cards. I just don't take any other green cards until I see <laughs> multiple good green cards. So a lot of times I just end the draft with, you know, Besager Reaches Skyward and it's not in my pile or whatever. Yeah, for sure. Number 20, two Shrine Stewards plus Grafted Growth lets you play all of the cards. Shrine Steward, that's got to be your pet card of the format, yeah? I think so. I think it's my number one pet card, yeah. And honestly, I mean, this the Shrine Steward plus Grafted Growth thing, I think, is pretty niche because there's not a lot of double pipped stuff you want to splash in the format, like aside from Behold or whatever. But I just think Shrine Steward was low key, pretty darn gluey in the set. And I was happy to speculate on this card early and happy to play it with two or more targets in my deck, whether they were Shrines, whether it was Intercessor's Arrest or Tameo's Completion or Twisted Embrace, whatever. Like this card was just good. Yeah, I agree. It was just good. I rarely got the good removal spells to play with it. Usually it was just like a born to drive and a grafted growth or whatever. And yeah. I'm still thrilled to play Shrine Steward. Love that yeah. guy. Or you could go fetch up the topic of our next take. Number 21, Harmonious Emergence is charging Monstrosaur. With Vigilance. Holy with cow. Vigilance. Yeah. So effectively five mana, four, five Vigilance haste. Um, if you wanted to attack with it the turn you cast it, you needed five mana. This card was really good. It was really good. I think there were some ways to punish it that felt terrible, but it was risk reward and I think worth taking the risk just because of how big it was and how well it stabilized against the aggro decks because the aggro decks didn't have a lot of ways to punish it. 
Yeah, the best way to punish this was the white march. Single white mana, exile the land, <laughs> just get it gone for good, plus the enchantment. Yeah, that was the best way to punish it. But uh, honestly, it just felt like a brick wall. It was huge, really hard to deal with. I liked this card a lot. Yeah, I mean, and you weren't picking it highly, but if you wanted more finishers, like certainly it was completely interchangeable with Tales of Master Shoshiro. Right. And sometimes even, even better. Like it was just a rock solid playable in green decks. Mm-hmm. Number 22, Season of Renewal plus Colossal Sky Turtle lets you do loops. Love me some loops. You could also do the loops with uh, Shigeki, the rare, if you were so fortunate. And that was so sick because it like just fueled itself, right? Like you didn't mind if you milled the Season of Renewal because you could just get it back and then use Season to get back Shigeki, etc. So good. Yeah, well, there was also Gloom Shaker plus Geothermal Kami. And honestly, with the Season of Renewal Colossal Sky Turtle, it wasn't that relevant or as relevant as I would have hoped it would be because usually if you had that green was just open and your deck was absurd and you didn't need to do loops to win it was pretty rare that I had a deck that was weak enough that it actually relied on the loop to win you know what I mean yeah well and and one of the few ways that I've gotten into green in the past few weeks has been speculating on a colossal sky turtle because honestly I mean maybe not main deck but out of the sideboard the the bounce part of the sky turtle the channel one and a blue part is like pretty good in some matchups right if your opponent's playing twisted embraces or whatever or playing intercessors arrests on your own creature then you can buy them back etc and then if i was trying to figure out what my second color was and i just got turtle plus season of renewal then i was like all right that's a reason to draft green right there yeah and if you don't know so season of renewal lets you get back a creature and an enchantment so you cast that get back your creature and your enchantment and then you can use the regrow mode on colossal sky turtle to in a green uh channel it to get back season of renewal and then the next time you cast season of renewal you get back colossal sky turtle as one of your two cards and you rinse and repeat and this was one of the reasons that graveyard exile or just exile period was so relevant in the format and just cards like gloom shrieker getting back sagas was just backbreaking Yep. Number 23, Tamiyo's Safekeeping is a bargain at one mana. Make sure you pick one up. Card is really strong. One of the best tricks we've seen in a while, and I think almost every green deck wants to play at least one copy. Well, but especially because like you really do want to protect your Besage Regis Skyward. That giant reach creature is so difficult to deal with. And so if you just get to make sure you have that safekeeping up, for, you know, th- there's also a chain reaction here of people aren't playing that much removal. Right. So when they do use that Twisted Embrace or that Assassin's Ink and you can blow them out, they probably don't have very many other ways to deal with it. Absolutely. Number 24, shrines were much better with a couple of on-color shrines than they were as an all-in archetype. And I think you would happily play the white and the green by themselves. And sometimes even the black, I think, if your four drop wasn't that clogged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think sometimes even the black. Um, but this was a fun little package to assemble, I think. I don't know how powerful it was, because honestly, that mana did end up adding up at some point, right? Like you you had a bit of a choke point or you had to decide, OK, am I going to make two one ones or am I going to kill something with my black shrine, whatever. But I, I do think that this was definitely a viable strategy in the format. Absolutely. Number 25, I think the biggest card evaluation disparity in the history of the podcast the fall of Lord Conda. Number 25A, the fall of Lord Conda <laughs> is great. Number 25B, the fall of Lord Conda is terrible. But <laughs> honestly, I don't even think it's terrible. Like I, I was, you know, in your chat the other day watching you stream and you had that as a choice. And I was like, you know, I actually don't hate it. I think in green white specifically is where I don't hate it the most because like 
the, the possibility that's a deck that like wants the game to go long. So you're likely to find a target. And because the game wants to go long, you can maybe even pick it up with a Kami or rebuy it, whatever, and get, really get max value out of it. But like every time you were like, the Fall of Lord Condo's been great, was like just when you <laughs> had a target for it. Like your floor for this card was, or your, your, your like your threshold for this card was so low. You were like, it killed something. It's great. <laughs> I mean, I think some of that too is best of one versus best of three, right? Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. I think you're willing to take on the risk in best of one of it killing a card that really matters. It's almost like a removal spell that forces you to play well with your removal right you almost have to save it for something that matters and yeah there's situations where you're like really want to kill a one mana value or a two mana value thing that's grown that's pretty awkward and i do agree that something like repel the vial is just better than fall of lord conda but i loved playing some fall of lord conda's main deck yeah yeah i think you know i i I came around eventually to it not being stone unplayable um (laughs) but uh but not much better than that yeah when i think in best of three you probably are supposed to start it in the sideboard yeah, I think so. Number 26, the big three sagas in the format. Life of Toshiro Umezawa, Behold the Unspeakable, and Baseju Reaches Skyward. Shout out to those. What's your, let's say you could see all three of those in a pack. Pack one, pick one. What would you take? Oh my God. That's <laughs> so hard. I think yeah. I would take Life of Toshiro because I'd want to start black and it's the cheapest. And there's no yeah. better feeling than having Life of Toshiro in your hand on turn two. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so sometimes it's just two mana gain four, two, three, which is I say the word just and that's still insanely powerful. Sometimes it's also two mana crush your opponent's soul and win the game. Right. Sometimes it's two mana kill your opponent's two drop. They can't play their other two drop for a turn and you win <laughs> like so good. Yeah. And I guess I guess if we were to extend it to the big five, we'd add in Machiko's Reign of Truth and Long Reach of Night. But like, I'm not even sure that those two are better than like Reckoner Raid, you know? Yeah, I think. Machiko's ceiling is certainly, but yeah. Oh, that sure, 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 sure. Yeah. Number 27, Dragon Spark Reactor, wah, wah, is a trap for aggressive red decks. And I think that's true, right? You really didn't want, you just don't want to take turn two off in your aggro red decks. You aren't super worried about like building this up over time. Like you want those games to just end quickly. Yeah, this is a combo card. It's really good in red black decks that want to grind with Oni Cult Anvils. You've got some stuff leaving the battlefield and it's just ticking up one or two times a turn without you even doing much. Exactly. Number 28, Containment Construct plus the Modern Age and or Network Terminal was your own personal howling mine. I love this. I think Containment Construct is like my favorite, I don't know, quote unquote, build around in the format. I mean, it was just effectively a blue card, um, but I really like that card. Yeah, and if you don't know Howling Mine, if you're an older player, that's a two-mana artifact that makes each player draw a card, an extra card on their upkeep. So that's the reference there. But yeah, Containment Construct is excellent, and I think it's just a card that goes well with cards you already want, right? Modern Age mm-hmm. and Network Terminal are cards you're already likely to be playing, and then when you assemble Splinter Twin, it's great. <laughs> Number 29, Brilliant Restoration. So this is three, and then Quad White for the sorcery that brought back all artifacts and enchantments from your graveyard to the battlefield. This was one of the few cards that actually incentivized you to change your pick orders and build around it. And it still wasn't necessarily right to pick early. It was a real all in or all out kind of card. Yeah. And I think Spirit Sisters Call was the other one of these rares that really changed your your pick orders. That was the three black white um, that at the end of your turn, you could sacrifice something and return a card from your graveyard that shared a type with it to the battlefield. And then it gained the text when this would leave the battlefield, exile it. But if you did sagas with Spirit Sisters Call, once they flipped, they lost that text. You could just continually loop your sagas, albeit very slowly, 
with Spirit Sisters Call. But yeah, super fun cards to build around. And there were not many of those in the format, which I think is one of the biggest knocks against the format is there weren't a lot of cards that really wanted you to change your pick orders. I agree. Number 30, the rare lands are lower picks than most of the good commons. Don't get sucked in by them. Yeah, this is a pretty big miss on my part from the set review. I think I gave all these like B minus B level because I'm just like, well, you're just never, you know, my argument for these kinds of cards is you just don't get short on playables and drafts these days. And so just getting to draft a land that's also a spell is is pretty darn powerful, right? And, and these were literal no cost to you, right? They come into play untapped, tap for your color, whatever, like no cost to you to put these in your deck. But they just their effects weren't that good. Yeah, the best commons are just way more important than these cards. And I think games of magic these days just aren't won through incremental advantage or top deck wars. I think they're won by cards that matter and the rare lands give you an effect, but not a good enough effect to make the difference in a game the way the premium commons do. Yeah, I'd say Baseju, the green one, is maybe an exception there. Um, just but but that's I think lar- more because of how relevant it was to kill artifacts and enchantments than like anything else. Right. Number 31, Neon Dynasty is the literal wordiest set of all time, and it shows. There are some cards even deep into the format that got me good. (laughs) You and I were doing a showdown video, and you cast Short Circuit, and I had no idea it made a creature lose flying. Yeah, I I cast it mid-combat and was able to block your flyer, and you were like, huh. Oh, and I had revealed it because I fetched it with Shrine Yeah, I knew it was in your hand. (laughs) It's all face up. Had no uh, idea the card did that. Kyodai, Soul of Kamigawa, also got me as well. For the first time ever, my opponent flashed it in, and they gave a creature indestructible, and then I killed a different creature in response, and chat was like, why didn't you kill the creature they gave indestructible? And I was like, eh, it doesn't matter. That creature's irrelevant. And then I was like, oh, it gets to keep indestructible <laughs> as long as my opponent has Kyodai? Because I'd always either killed the creature in response or killed the Kyodai. I'd never had both the creature and Kyodai stick around. It's crazy. Yeah, look, what's it like being you and just being just continually being surprised and, you know, just getting getting new information every day with this game? It's just great. Life's wonderful. (laughs) It's always an adventure. (laughs) Number 32, blue white vehicles wasn't really a deck. It was more of blue white good cards that happened to maybe have a couple of vehicles. Yeah, that's that's a shame for you to get that take. As, uh, as something you have to read. You were pretty hot on this as a deck. I was pretty hot on this as a deck in the set review, although yeah. quickly adjusted. Yeah, uh, for sure. And I think your fave, Prodigy's Prototype, still pretty good, though. I think Prodigy's Prototype is so, so good. Yeah, one of my favorite cards, and I think super underrated right now. Yeah, but Blue-White really was get some Imperial Oaths, make the game go long, win mm-hmm. with your Imperial Oaths. And and splash like again like just like those Esper colors really bled together. You got a terrarium and a network terminal and some duels or whatever, and you really got to you know your splash could be pretty deep if you were blue white. You could play five, six, seven black cards if you wanted to. For sure. Number thirty three decks that are largely traps and should rarely be drafted in the format. We've got red white samurais slash attacking alone, red green modified, and the aforementioned blue white vehicles. Number thirty four. The format went through three phases. Phase one, sagas were undervalued and green was king. Phase two, green was overdrafted and red aggro decks were the hotness. And phase three, where we've been at recently, Esper was really the only thing that was open on a consistent basis. And the rest of the world was either just still trying to draft green or forcing red with, you know, two to three people at a table trying to draft red. And honestly, like, I think the Esper thing is so 
good. If you just want to go into a draft of this format and and win or just have a consistently good deck, just navigate your way into two of these three colors and or like whatever or all three of them and just have a good mana base. But it's just so easy. You can't get cut out of them because the top 10 commons in the format are in these three colors. Right. And you end up very consistently with like a 7.5 out of 10 deck, an 8 out of 10 deck. And yes, you lose to the green and red decks that shoot the moon, but your fail case is so much lower than the people that are trying to draft those colors. Yeah. Number 35, the golden egg award winner of the format goes to Virus Beetle. What didn't this card do? Holy cow, that little guy could. It's so backbreaking on turn two when your opponent plays it, especially if you've mulliganed, and then imagine they pick it up with a ninja, or it blanks your X1, or it's an artifact that just sits on the battlefield for things that care about artifacts and enchantments. It's free to sacrifice to all the things that want to sacrifice artifacts. It pulled so many cards together while also just being relevant as a 1-1 that made your opponent discard a card because all of the cards in the format mattered. You just wanted to make your land drops to cast your good cards like Imperial Oath or there were ways to loot your lands away. You just didn't run out of action in the format. Right. The other thing about this card was that like it's not like it got more irrelevant. Like it was still good on turn two, good later. And like, yeah, Imperial Oath is such a good example of what am I supposed to do when I have like four drop imperial oath and a land like i don't want to get rid of any of those right yeah number 36 it was very important to pick up colorless fixing out of weak packs so that you could splash when you eventually got the good cards yeah lots of investing in the future of your draft in this format with cards like uncharted haven ecologists terrarium and network terminal terrarium especially i think is a card that i had to get used to taking a little earlier and earlier because like you know in the first month of the format you could just you only really wanted one of these and you could reliably get them at some point, like on the wheel or whatever. And then people got wise and started snapping it up. And so I'd start, all right, I'll, I'll take this fourth or fifth out of weak packs. I'm fine with that. Yeah, that's where I ended up with Network Terminal too. Don't let yeah. the first one pass me by me often anymore. Right, because there's just so many times where you're like in pack three, you're like, this deck would be so much better if I had Terrarium or Terminal and then you just don't get it. Right. Number 37, Suit Up is Doomblade draw a card, and it took folks a while to figure it out. I slash folks are still figuring it out because it goes <laughs> like last pick still, and this is one of the top 10 commons in the set. Yeah, the fact that Blue Black had three combat tricks to punish blocking with ninjas was pretty overpowered. It had You're Already Dead, it had Return to Action, and Suit Up. And those were all effectively kill the thing draw a card, right? They all replaced themselves. Return to Action just replaced itself by returning the creature back into play like it was and that was the thing like your opponent attacked with virus beetle on turn three what the heck are you supposed to do right that that was the real strength of blue black you just put your opponent in terrible positions yeah number 38 pushing up the power level on sagas really allowed r&d to push up the power level of the aggressive tempo cards and still not let them be oppressive so cards like network disruptor kimono faces kakazan and clawing torment might be like busted or push those aggro decks over the top in other sets but not here i mean clawing torment especially has impressed me the last two or three weeks if you mm -hmm. are aggressive that card is premium and you don't need to pick it like it's premium but wow is that a good removal spell in aggressive decks yeah number 39 oni cult anvil was one of the most important individual cards to making an archetype tick like this has to be one of the few cards that made me like scrap everything. And when I saw it, like pick five or whatever and go, all right, well, if this is open, I'm going to do this because it's so good at pulling that deck together. 
and it's so fun to play too. I only yeah. had two of them on the battlefield once, all format long, but I felt unstoppable when I had two yeah. of them on the battlefield. It's so good. Yeah, su- super fun deck to play. Play patterns of like, am I supposed to sack something on my turn? Am I so- supposed to block sack on their turn? Am I supposed to sacrifice it all? Like, like you know, then, then timing out the drains to kill your opponent. Yeah, very fun deck. Well, and I think one of the coolest things about it was it let a color pair that wasn't particularly grindy always, like it could be very aggressive, but once you got this style, could honestly grind with the best of the saga decks in the format, depending on how they were attacking you. Mm-hmm, for sure. Number 40. Geothermal Kami looks clunky, but it is a value generating machine in the right deck. Yeah, I mean, we already alluded to picking up Gloom Shrieker to rebuy that ETB and have that little loop. I mean, just picking up Spirited Companion, obviously picking up Sagas was busted. Picking up, you know, if heaven forbid your opponent put uh, one of your enchantment creatures under an arrest or a completion and you got to pick that up, like... And the, and the three life was relevant. I mean, I know we keep talking about like the format being a little slow or, you know, maybe not clunky, but just slower, grindier. I mean, you faced aggro decks sometimes. And when they played a Kami and got value and life, that also felt like an Imperial Oath levels of slamming the door on aggressive decks. Right. Even something as simple as picking up Fang of Shigeki to gain three life and then replay mm-hmm. Fang of Shigeki in a, an aggro matchup was very powerful. Number 41, Farewell is one of the best sweepers we've ever seen for limited. And that's pretty impressive given that it costs six mana. Yeah, it's just Plague Wind most of the time. And if it's not Plague Wind, it's definitely restart from ground zero, potentially leaving you one extra resource or two extra resources from your opponent. It's busted in half. I mean, compare that to what is it was like path to peril, path of peril in Val. It was one black black, but the cleave cost was four white black. So also six mana. And that card didn't matter at all. It was so much so easy to just like build out your board again. The fact that you could just like draft this in an enchantment deck and then just name artifacts or whatever. It was like also really fun, had good play patterns of you could like play into this sweeper yourself. So you didn't have to telegraph it so much because it could be one sided. Exiling graveyards was so good. Love fair. Right. And you could set up by playing a saga and then not Mm -hmm. exiling enchantments. There were just a ton of things you could do. Right, right, right. Number 42, the official invoke power rankings. Number one, invoke the ancients. Number two, invoke justice. Number three, invoke despair. Number four, invoke the winds. And bringing up the rear substantially, invoke calamity, the red invoke. And I think the green and the white ones were really number one and number two, really top of the heap because of careful cultivation and Sunblade Samurai helping to make quad green or quad white more castable. And I think a surprise overtaking of Invoke the Winds, the Blue Invoke by Invoke Despair. I just invoked a lot of despair on stream right before we sat down to record this. I had two of them in my black green deck. It, it, just, it was just really hard to want to be that heavy blue. I thought I felt like blue was a support color a lot of the time, but quad blue felt like a pretty big ask. No, yeah, I'm on board. I, I agree. I just would have thought at the start of the format that Invoke the Winds would have been the best, if not one of the best. Yeah, and I think I got Invoke Despair cast against me a bunch before I finally was like, okay, this card is pretty brutal. Like, <laughs> I think I thought, well, how, how could this, you know, multiple edict effect be that backbreaking? But it just really was. It's a three for one or a two for one at worst. Number 43, Reconvigure ranged from great to clunky. And I think the keys here were cheap equip costs plus boosting power and toughness was key. And I think uh, I think I would have been pretty shocked had you told me at the start of the format that Chain Flail Centipede 
would have been better than our preview card leech gauntlet but it absolutely was yeah you really needed to boost power and toughness and i think the the cheaper the reconfigure cost the more important like something like rabbit battery was obviously very powerful but it actually was insane in the red aggressive decks Right, yeah. Single mana to give plus plus one and haste was wild. I mean, four mana to just give lifelink for Leech Gauntlet was you just you almost never did that. You just played. You were just like, ah, two mana, two, two lifelink with types. That was that's fine. Yeah. Number 44, Planner Incision was a valuable addition to most blue decks. There's just tons of ETBs, tons of leave the battlefields to rebuy, like stuff like Papercraft Decoy and Circuit Mender. It's not when they die, it's when they leave, right? You had Ambush Potential because it came back immediately with the counter. And my personal favorite, which I think I saw you do on stream first, (laughs) was you cast it on your flipped Behold the Unspeakable to flip it back and get minus two minus O as a combat trick. That that blew my mind when I saw that. I was like, all right, I got to start playing this card more. And honestly, it's not like a high pick or anything, but I've been pretty happy with it in most blue decks. Well, much like the green cards that make the good cards better, Planner Mm -hmm. Incision is that type of card for blue decks. There's just a lot of ways to make your good cards even better, which is what you want from your filler when the good cards are what matter in the format. That's a really good point. Like I hadn't really, really put that in such a neat little package, but that's totally true. Number 45, Undercity Scrounger was trash. Long live Sailor of Means as the three mana one four with treasure text. Yeah, I put Undercity Scrounger down in our, you know, preview, whatever rankings of the cards as my number three black common before the set came out and it did not hold up. Yeah, just just not not doesn't pull its weight. It's weird because it has types and like blocks well or whatever, but it's just not good enough. Number 46, Surge Hacker Mech is a lot closer to colorless twin shot sniper than you think. I I looked at this card initially and thought it looked clunky, but honestly, like in a format where removal isn't great because everything's a two for one, well, here's a two for one for you that is removal. Well, and it dodging a lot of the sorcery speed removal was annoying. It was just a good card. Yep. Number 47, Raito Sentinel gets the Ethan single-handedly raising its win rate <laughs> award slash the award for most asked card. Why are you putting that in your deck? <laughs> Why are you excited to draft this card? Um, I do really think that never decking was real in some matchups, specifically with green, but also there were times where you had whatever, a brilliant restoration or an invoke justice and you were interested in fueling your graveyard and then getting stuff back. And I definitely did have games where or, 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 you know, your opponent went to cast Gloom Shrieker and target a card in their graveyard and you got to bottom it so it didn't go back to their hand. Like it did a lot of little things, maybe not well, but anyway, this is the kind of card that I like and I think it's pretty good. No, yeah, I think even especially the thing about exiling your things out of your opponent's graveyard when they wanted to recur things, I could see it being super powerful out of the sideboard in best of three for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Number 48. Speaking of cards that are better than you think, Searchlight Companion. Holy cow, that card has just been on a slow trajectory up in his power level for me the entire format. Right. I mean, yeah, we talked about this like a week or two ago, but I'm just like, oh, yeah, I guess this is pretty good because it enables ninjas. Oh, I guess it's pretty good because it adds types or it's two bodies. It's just yeah, it's just good because of all of that. Like you just want it. Basically, the only time I wouldn't be super happy with it, I guess, is in like a green white deck. But most of the time, I was just thrilled to take this card. Yeah, it's very strong. Number 49, Neon Dynasty has a lot of unique rules of engagement, which we've talked about, like, you know, removal not mattering or, you know, it's just being two for one the format or types being good or the spectrum of red to green from artifacts to enchantments. So a lot of unique stuff. 
But once you understand those rules, the draft portion, I think, feels pretty solved and has felt solved for weeks now. Yes, I completely agree with that. And I think it was a lot of cool rules of engagement, like things like the red decks really having to be super low to the ground to compete with the sagas or, you know, what you needed to do to make sure that your saga deck went over the top of your opponent's deck that was trying to go over the top. Like there were a lot of different things going on in the format. But I think once you knew all of that stuff, there were a lot of objectively correct picks in the draft portion. And very few, and this has honestly maybe been the case for a while, very few things that caused you to change your pick orders. You know, I was thinking about, uh, you know, like it or not, Crimson Vow had you changing your pick orders a lot because the power level of rares was so warped that you were so incentivized to be like, all right, I'm starting my draft with the Dreadfeast Demon, and now I'm going to take like the sixth best black common next because I want to play black so much. You didn't have that here, slash you also just didn't have a lot of whatever, quote unquote, build arounds, like the cards that were signposts did their thing, or they were just purely good and splashable, etc. Like you, I mean, maybe fixing moved up in your pick order as the format progressed. But that's, again, I think more in the category of rules of engagement than it is speaking to any sort of warping pick order thing. Right, there were the decks and you knew which cards went in which decks and which cards were good in which decks and how the deck needed to operate, you know, to be a winning archetype for its color pair or whatever. But a lot of that led to, this is the best card in this pack, I should take it. This is the best card for this in this pack, I should take it. Yeah. All right, bring us home. Number 50, gameplay in Neon Dynasty is GOAT status, but the format itself is not. Yeah, and this feels good to me, at least, to just be on the same page as you after coming off of the two Innistrad sets where, you know, you really liked one and I didn't, and then we flipped for the next one. I think we're pretty much in agreement. Like, I think this set, I, I've been very happy with this set. I you know I'm right now I'm like kind of jonesing to play it myself. Like it's been out for, I think, a good amount of time and I'm still enjoying it, um, but definitely not goat status for me. Yeah, I, but a very good set. I think solid yeah. B plus. And I think so. just, it's just not one of the best of all time, but that's OK. And I do think the gameplay was really, really good. And the reason I'm still playing the format is not because of the draft portion. It's because the gameplay is really fun. Yeah, there's just a lot of very interesting decisions to make, certainly early on, a lot of snowball-y things. And then because the games often are going along, you still have relevant, interesting decisions You know, on turn 9, 10, 11, whatever. And just a lot of varieties of strategies and a lot of varieties of archetypes that push in a lot of different directions that you don't usually get a play limit. It's not often you're playing a red deck that has 10 one-drops in it in yeah. a normal limited format. For sure. All right. Great place to wrap us up. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Thank you so much to ChannelFireball.com for sponsoring this podcast. If you're heading over to CFB for any and all purchases or signing up for CFB Pro, please use the code LOL when you check out to let them know we sent you over there. You can check us out streaming. I'm at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. Mr. is spelled out. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later.